You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Pretty, pretty, pretty pony. Pretty pony. He thinks he has your back against a wall. But you did not survive the horrors of the arena to die atop a frigid cliff. He thinks you have never been in a situation this dire before. He is wrong. You refuse to let this be the end of you. But that doesn't mean the situation isn't desperate. Many of your people have already sunk into despair. You're trapped at the top of the mountain with only one winding way down, and the Romans guard the path. The weather is deadly. Even now, a storm lashes your people with ice and freezing wind. There is no shelter up here. Nothing to build with. The top of the mountain is a thin rim of rock and dust, the cliffs on one side plummeting down to the plains below, on the other into the mountain's heart. There is nothing to eat and nothing to drink. You look around at your people, huddled and miserable in the middle of the storm, and you know they won't last long. And that's what the Romans are counting on. The Praetor's plan is to wait you out, to wait until you are too weak with hunger and cold to fight back. Your rebellion's success rests on a sword's edge. You have faced insurmountable odds before, but every time you have outthought your enemies, you know the game they are playing, because you played it once too. You served at their side, watched their backs as they went to war against your own people. There has to be a way out. There is a commotion over to your left. You stride into a crowd of men to see several crouched around a pot full of rainwater, clutching their stomachs and groaning. They've tried to make tea from the vines, someone tells you. Anything to fill their empty bellies. The vines. Those are the only thing that grows on this cursed mountaintop. Thick and nearly impossible to cut. There is one snaking past your sandal. You bend down to examine it. Its roots go deep. It is surprisingly pliable and sturdy. An idea comes to you. You might just have a way off this mountain. A way the Romans will never see coming. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. 
And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So two weeks ago, we introduced you to Spartacus. We set the stage for his rebellion and showed you the complicated landscape of the Roman Republic during the 70s BC. The Republic was engaged in several wars, had a raging pirate problem in the Mediterranean, and was still rebuilding itself after the civil wars, or, as I prefer to call them, the Sulla v. Marius grudge matches. To say things were unsettled in the Roman Republic is putting it rather mildly. Into this boiling pot of discontent stew, our hero rises like a golden dumpling. (laughs) (laughs) Who the fuck wrote this shit? I remember it was my job to write the episode, and then... Into this boiling pot of discontented stew, our hero rises like a dumpling. Are you going to let me finish and tell you exactly how this episode got written or not? No, I just want to make fun of it right now. So it was my job to write the episode, and I got completely overwhelmed, and I asked myself, what would Mark Antony do? Because that seemed like a good person to base my life choices on. Oh my god. So I took a nap in a blanket fort, and I woke up, and the whole episode was written, and the only thing I had to do was translate it from Latin to English. It was great. That is true. (laughs) I was with her every step of the way where she was going, I can't translate Mark Antony's Latin. It's too full of curse words. Oh, Mark Antony didn't write this. It's definitely Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's responsible for our hero rises like a dumpling, eh? He's very proud of that line. Julius Caesar, what have you got to say for yourself? I think he's not going to grace us with an answer. You know how upset he gets when you criticize his poetry. Are you seriously giving me crickets right now, Julius Caesar? You know what? You offered yourself up for ridicule and now you can't take the heat. You're a wussy. Fair enough. I'm just saying, Julius Caesar has the tiniest nards. (laughs) Tiny little ding-dongs. Oh, we're giving him so much shit right now. Just because he has a magic D doesn't mean he has good nards. In our last episode, Spartacus and his... (laughs) Nards. (laughs) I just think the word nards is funny. (laughs) Can we just move on, Jenny? Yes, we can. Okay, moving on. In our last episode, Spartacus and his compatriots broke out of the Ludus, or gladiator school, in Capua and began their rebellion. Spartacus's legend was spurred on by the prophecies of his lover, a priestess of Dionysus called the Thracian Lady. She told a story of Spartacus's divine mission from Dionysus and his favor with the god that inspired people to follow him. The religion of Dionysus was the religion of the lower classes, the religion of the disenfranchised and the underdogs, and this message no doubt instantly made his band of revolutionaries appealing to the enslaved and displaced in the countryside of Italy. After breaking out of the Ludus, Spartacus and his fellow gladiators got their hands on some proper weapons and made straight for Mount Vesuvius. This was a refuge that would allow his army a place to train, hide out, and grow their forces quickly before the Roman Senate could send out reinforcements. Mount Vesuvius in the 70s BC was a sleeping giant, a massive volcano set in the Italian countryside. It had not erupted in living memory. The grounds around the mountain were fertile, great for growing wine and raising livestock. The ancient people had no idea the secrets the mountain contained. So they had numerous towns, rich country homes, villas, and farms all around the volcano. But this was also an area hit hard by the social and civil wars. There were still undeveloped places, farms and homes that had been ruined or abandoned after the redistribution of land left many family farmers homeless. In short... It was a great place for an army to disappear. And the farms and villas that weren't abandoned provided an opportunity for Spartacus to swell and sustain his army. This was Latifundia country, a place of large industrial-level agricultural estates populated by workforces of thousands of enslaved people who could be freed and recruited. The villas were perfect for plundering without risking getting too close to the city of Pompeii, 
and the mountains and hilly areas were ideal for melting into the woods like a ghost army. In short, Spartacus and his rebels picked a perfect place to begin their attack on the Roman Republic. So this is where Spartacus set up his base camp. And before we move on with the story, let's take a minute to talk about what Spartacus's army looked like at this time. Spartacus's army was made up of many factions of freed people, Germans, Gauls, Celts, Thracians, and we can extrapolate that there would have been Greek, Northern African, Spanish, Syrian, and Scythian people as well, and maybe even some Italian tribes. Essentially, Spartacus's army was incredibly diverse, made up of recently freed enslaved peoples that had been brought to the area from across the Roman Republic and places where Rome was fighting its wars. The ancient sources tend to only focus on a few of these groups, the Gauls, Germans, Thracians, and Celts, but that just confirms their bias because the Roman Republic during this time would have been much more diverse and Spartacus's army absolutely would have reflected that. Spartacus had several commanders who looked after various factions in his army. Two of the most important were Crixus and Animaeus. These men were both Gauls and they had trained together with Spartacus in Batiatus's Ludus. They had taken the gladiator oaths together. They were bonded as brothers. Spartacus probably trusted them as brothers, despite their different tribal background from his own. The cult-like brainwashing that went into turning a gladiator into a brother worked in their favor. And when they broke out of their gladiator school, they did it together. Crixus and Animaeus were both Gauls. We know very little else about them. We don't know their tribal affiliations. We don't know where they came from in Gaul. We do know that Crixus means curly-haired in Gallic, which I love. Picture it, Jen. He had these glorious curly locks, which were probably not doing so well in the Italian humidity. I don't know. Maybe there's like some like ancient pomade or like oil of some kind. Maybe he just put some nourishing oil in there and ran his hands through his curls and came up with glorious beachy waves. I mean, that's absolutely not how curly hair works, but let's pretend it is. <laughs> anyway, so Crixus is clearly Fabio with glorious curly locks. He's like a curly haired, beautiful man. That's my story. Shamelessly objectifying Crixus now. I'm going to stop. Okay, I'm going to continue with the actual story. Okay, I'm just going to be over here writing my uh, fan fiction about Crixus. You do whatever you have to do to get through this episode. So Spartacus would have looked to Crixus and Animaeus to inspire and lead the Gauls and his army. Because as the army grew, Spartacus would have been less able to rely on the gladiatorial brotherhood to hold everyone together. We know from the Roman sources that Spartacus's army had internal rifts, and the factional struggles may have begun as early as this time at Mount Vesuvius. As we have talked about in our Vercingetorix series or our Thracians episodes, the Gauls and Thracians were tribal people with fierce tribal loyalties. They may have found it difficult to take orders from people outside of their tribal allegiances. The fact that Spartacus had two generals in charge of the Gallic branch of his army suggests that he had a massive amount of Gauls in his army and that they might have felt more allegiance to Crixus or Onimaeus than to Spartacus. Whether this is because of their tribal loyalties or an innate distrust of Thracians or something like that, we don't know. But we do know that, much like Vercingetorix, Spartacus was herding cats who really didn't like each other and whose only reason for being in the same room was because they hated the Romans more. So Spartacus split his Gallic forces into two divisions, one led by Crixus and one led by Onimaeus. There are two reasons he may have had for doing this. One, Spartacus might have been afraid to give either Crixus or Onimaeus that much power over the largest branch of his army. I mean, that's sensible. Or two, Spartacus might have noticed infighting amongst the Gallic people and needed to divide the leadership to keep the tribes happy. 
We'll never know exactly why Spartacus chose to split the leadership of his Gallic forces, but we do know that it was a smart decision. It kept Spartacus in charge of the entire army and allowed him to be the driving and uniting force amongst the rebels. If he was worried about one person under him having too much control over too large of a faction of his army, splitting his Gallic forces is the way to go. Absolutely, especially when you think about how much he would have relied on his Gallic warriors. Because at that point in time, we know that Rome had been engaged in a lot of wars with Gaul. So the influx of freed Gallic people that Spartacus would have had in his army would have been really, really high. The other thing to consider here is that I remember reading somewhere, and I don't remember where the source on this was, but I remember reading somewhere at some point that Gauls were especially in demand as slaves on Latifundias because they were believed to be really strong and hardy. That is an interesting thing, and that might be sort of why when the ancient sources talk about the breakdown of Spartacus's army, they lean so heavily on Thracian Gauls, Celts, and Germans, because those were most of the people who were out in the countryside at this point in time. They might have been people who were like in the Latifundias specifically at this point in time. That doesn't mean that there weren't other people as well in Spartacus's army. It just means these might have been the largest factions for various reasons. The other thing is, too, though, that Rome was currently in a war in Pontus, I guess, in the Turkey area and borders on like their eastern provinces. So there would have been people of color from that area in slavery, possibly in Spartacus's army. I think it was probably very diverse. It was incredibly diverse. We see the ancient sources focusing on what they think of as the people who Spartacus had in the largest groups, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it doesn't mean that that was in fact the case and it doesn't mean that that was the whole picture. So essentially what Spartacus did was arrange his army like the Roman auxiliaries. He allowed his command of the different factions of his army to be enforced by hand-picked generals that shared a tribal connection with those factions and would be able to inspire those people's loyalties. He also allowed them to fight in the style that suited them best. So yeah, you're right. He's doing exactly what the Romans did when they had auxiliaries. Yeah, and in the short term, while he doesn't have time or the luxury of of like building up an army in a way that everyone can be drilled to do the same thing perfectly. He's got to let them fight in the way they know how to, because that's the way in which he's going to get the most out of his warriors that he's got with limited time. I really think it's interesting charting the differences between Spartacus and Vercingetorix because they were both dealing with kind of the same problems. Like they had disparate forces. They were both in a time crunch. They had both fought on the Roman side before. And you see Vercingetorix trying to mold everybody into more of a homogenous group that only looked to him. But you see Spartacus kind of honoring and dealing with people's differences. I think some of that probably comes from the things that were stripped away from Spartacus when he was enslaved. He wasn't allowed to be himself. He wasn't allowed to worship his gods. He wasn't allowed to have pride in his culture and his heritage. And I suspect when he escaped, one of the things he wanted to give back to the people who were serving with them was their own cultural identity. He didn't want to take that from them. That's really a possibility. And to be clear, we don't know what was in Spartacus's head. There's no point in any of the ancient sources where they give us any part of his internal monologue. So we don't know that that's how he felt, but it could have been. We don't even know that Spartacus was his name. It was probably his gladiatorial name. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. 
And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Anyway, when you think about it, Spartacus's approach here was really smart. Let the people do what they did best, following someone from their culture that they could respect, while Spartacus himself dealt with the high-level concerns, feeding, housing, planning, and outmaneuvering the Romans. Spartacus had two other generals as well, Gannicus and Castus. When they became generals is a little more up for debate, but they were Celtic and Gallic respectively, and they co-commanded the Germanic forces of Spartacus's rebels. We know little else about them. We don't know if they were also gladiators in Batiatus's Ludus, or if they had auxiliary experience, or why they were chosen to lead Germanic forces when neither of them were German. The speculation is literally endless. If you've watched the Stars TV show of Spartacus, and if you haven't, you now have homework. Go and watch it. How do you live with yourself having not watched this TV show? It's excellent. How do you listen to us? We've talked about it so many times, but anyway. But if you have watched it, then you know that Gannicus and Agron were based on the real Gannicus and Castus. But again, the entirety of like stuff the ancient sources has about the Spartacus War is maybe... 15 pages. So it's a very much like you get to tell the story how you want to tell it. So those were Spartacus's right-hand men, but who were his rank and file? Well, we know Spartacus started out with at least 74 escaped gladiators, the initial band of men and maybe women, this is up for debate, who broke out of the ludus with Spartacus. So just about whether or not there were women, I have a feeling, knowing what I know about gladiators that Jen has taught me throughout this arc, I think that it was unlikely there were female gladiators with the original band because they were mainly seen in the provinces from what we know. I think you're probably right. We don't know the answer here. In theory, the ancient sources would have told us because they would have been a novelty, but... Like, if there's women doing things that women don't usually do, the ancient sources really get excited about it. So, you know, if there were lots of women fighting, we probably would have seen it, but maybe not. Well, I mean, there's so few details about so many things, but I think whether or not there were women who were gladiators with Spartacus, there were definitely women who broke out of the school with Spartacus. We could safely assume that there were women in his army at various points in time. There may have been women who broke out with him who were not gladiators, but who were enslaved on the Ludus. And on the Stars show, they do have a lot of women who are martial and who fight with Spartacus. And they mostly come from cultures where women are more martial. I think that that's also a possibility. We can't rule it out. I think that there were definitely women in the army. There may have been some women fighting in his army. I don't think that that's out there to assume. I mean, I'm going to hands down say there were definitely women fighting in his army. The reality is that Spartacus's army was made up of a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures. But once you kind of join that army, you were in for a penny, in for a pound. So if you were a female and you didn't decide, like, now's my time to learn some skills with the sword, I don't know what you were thinking, because the Romans were coming one way or another. As good a time as any to pick up some fighting skills, right? <laughs> I would want to be able to kill them with a sword or fall on it. So... We can assume that there were lots of diverse tribes and nationalities in Spartacus's original group, because that's usually how Eludus operated. Lunista did not like keeping lots of gladiators of a similar background together. 
These warriors have been trained in the art of killing for show, a talent that was great when you were trying to win over the adoring Roman crowds, but not as useful when you were tackling a highly trained legion who had been taught to fight and die together. But Spartacus was different. He had served time in the Roman auxiliary. He knew how the Romans fought. He knew what it was like to go up against the might of the legions. He had probably seen many people try it, and lose. And he knew what he had to do to give his army a fighting chance. He had to take all of the skills he had honed in the ludus, all of the intelligence he had gathered in the auxiliaries, and combine them to create a rebel army that could stand up against Rome. It's really a cliche that gladiators were formidable enough to stand up to the Roman army on their own. I don't think that that is the case. There are two other points in history I can think of besides the Spartacus Wars where you see gladiators facing off against the Roman army proper. One is during the Sulla and Marius Wars when Marius marshaled a troop of gladiators to defend the city against Sulla. And the other was later on during the empire. We covered this in the Pupienus and Balbinus section of our series that we did about the Praetorian Guard. And both times, the gladiators lost pretty badly. And you know what? That actually doesn't surprise me because most gladiators, as we said, they came from different tribal backgrounds. They didn't want to serve the Romans. In this instance, Spartacus is giving them one reason to fight on a common enemy. We don't know how the gladiators in these other situations felt, but I think that that had to have been a factor. I think, and the other thing is that um, the difference here is that Spartacus really understood how the Romans fought because he's fought with them too. So he was not just a gladiator. No, I mean, we don't 100% know, but we're just going out and saying he was in the auxiliaries. You can't assume anything really with Spartacus, but I think that is pretty safe assumption, right? Like the ancient sources say that he was. The ancient sources contradict themselves, but we're going to go with that. So right from the beginning, Spartacus had to have known that he needed more recruits. 74 gladiators could harass a smaller peacekeeping force, but eventually Rome would strike back with a full legion or even larger force that Spartacus's ragtag army wouldn't be able to defeat. So as soon as he got to Mount Vesuvius, Spartacus started freeing as many enslaved people around Pompeii and the Latifundia-rich countryside as possible. As soon as he set up his camp at Mount Vesuvius, Spartacus, this is a quote from Appian, quote, allowed many runaway domestic slaves and some free farmhands to join him. So according to Appian, Spartacus was happy to admit any runaway slaves into his army. His preference was for able-bodied, hardy men who could wield a sword or spear, but he also took domestic slaves, women, and children into his ranks. And this is because for many of these newly freed slaves, there was nowhere else to go. In our episode, A Day at the Gladiatorial Games, we looked at what could happen to an entire household of enslaved people if even one slave rebelled. Often, all of the enslaved people could be put to death after the murder of their master, regardless of their roles in the murder. So if slaves on these latifundias were killing their masters and running off to join Spartacus, that left their fellow enslaved people in a tough spot. A lot of non-combatants would have needed somewhere safe to take refuge, and Spartacus's willingness to let these people into his camp had to have made him popular with enslaved people looking to rebel. The other category of people admitted into Spartacus's army was free farmhands. Free farmhands were probably displaced farmers whose land had been taken away from them during the civil wars. These farmers were now unable to make a living doing the one thing they knew how to do, farm. Their only options were to work on their former land as a tenant farmer, barely scraping out an existence, or to go and work as a hired hand on a latifundia. Neither of these options were appealing to farmers, who just a generation ago had been able to make a good living working their own lands. 
But after the land redistributions of the social and civil wars, after the widespread expansion of the latifundia system, the options for a small family farmer were slim. No doubt many of these free farmhands had a chip on their shoulder, a desire to make the people who had taken away their livelihood and homes pay. And once again, Spartacus was happy to shelter these people. So these were the people who made up Spartacus's army. And while some of them may have been taken prisoner while fighting in armies that lost to Rome originally, and that's why they were enslaved in the first place, many did not have combat experience. Spartacus needed space and time to turn these people into a proper fighting force. So in the spring and summer of 73 BC, Spartacus and his rebels hid out on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. Spartacus and his generals trained the floods of new recruits who arrived daily. The more experienced fighters broke off into small bands who raided nearby villas and stole valuable supplies from travelers. At first, the Roman Senate didn't take this band of escaped slaves very seriously. What they thought was happening was just a summer crime wave in the countryside. This was something that the Senate believed that the local authorities needed to just, you know, sort out themselves. It was just like a little bandit problem, you know, like the last time when the shepherds got frisky and took everybody's stuff. It's like that. This wasn't unusual in the Roman countryside where bandits would do this stuff, like just, you know, robbing travelers on the road, taking their stuff. We talked about how the Latifundia system expanding in this region meant that there was an expansion of banditry because of the shepherds. So they may have seen it as just, you know, more of the same of that. Absolutely. And at this point, the Senate didn't consider this rebellion an actual rebellion. They certainly didn't think of it as an all-out war on their own soil. First, because the rebelling army was made up of runaway slaves and gladiators, the Romans did not consider them honorable, worthy opponents, and they didn't see Spartacus as a leader. In short, they didn't really see them as people. And if you're not feeling angry right now, then you're not paying attention. However, Spartacus's army was right in the middle of Latifundia country grain country. And as more and more enslaved people in this area abandoned the Latifundias and joined Spartacus's army, it started to disrupt the grain supply. Plus, many of the senators had vacation homes in this area, and Spartacus's activity was making things just uh, so unsafe. This could not be endured. Not the vacation home, no! No! This is terrible. So, about a year into Spartacus's war, a young praetor named Gaius Claudius Glauber was dispatched with 300 soldiers to squash the definitely not a rebellion rebellion. And we need to stop for a minute and talk about who Gaius Claudius Glauber was and the men who would have fought beside him, because this is important. Gaius Claudius Glauber was a praetor, probably about 39 years old. He was a plebeian, but his name Claudius hints at possible connections to the famous Claudius clan that eventually became the Claudian side of the Julio-Claudians, you might have heard of them. You know, the ones that eventually produced Germanicus, our blue-eyed prince, our golden god. Swoon! I know. And the Emperor Claudius. Glaber was relatively high-ranked in that praetors were just a step below consuls, which were the highest-ranking people in the Republic system. So Glaber was, on the one hand, clearly somebody ambitious and well-connected, but... He may not have been first string here, right, Jen? Because he wasn't out fighting in the real wars against Sertorius or Mithridates. This is where all Rome's best people were at the moment. Yeah, they're out fighting against the real threats to the Republic. Not banditry and escaped slaves in the countryside. Yeah, Glover was at home, being sent into the countryside to handle a whole bunch of rowdy slaves. And this was not exactly an assignment that would win him much glory if he won, because a Roman was expected to win in this kind of conflict as a matter of course. If he didn't win, though, he would ruin his reputation. Because what kind of Roman doesn't win against a bunch of bandits and escaped slaves, right? This was lose-lose here. But 
If Glaba was someone who felt he had to prove himself, this would have been his proving ground. When the order came down from the Senate to bring an end to the crime wave that definitely wasn't a rebellion, Glaber was determined to do just that. Because the faster he put an end to all this, the faster he could level up in his career and put low-level problems, like a bunch of escaped slaves and miscreants behind him. I wonder if Julius Caesar was in Glaber's army. <laughs> Julius Caesar would never serve under Glaber. Oh, Miss Williamson, please. If you were in Glaber's army, what were you doing? It's a big historical mystery. Julius Caesar has told you many times that one does not discuss what one was doing during the Spartacus War. <laughs> I don't know, Julius Caesar. I think you're going to tell us by the end of this series. Depends on how bored he is right now and what he's watching on Netflix. Do you think we can tickle it out of him? I'm not involved in that. <laughs> I don't know, Julius Caesar. How ticklish are you? Come here. I'm going to test this out. I'm going to get us back to the story while Jenny tickles a ghost. <laughs> so, who made up Glaber's army? According to Appian, quote, Instead of legionary forces, Glaber had anyone they could quickly conscript on the way to Mount Vesuvius, because the Romans did not yet class the affair as a war, but as a kind of raid akin to piracy. Most of the seasoned fighting men were off at war with Rome's foreign enemies, Sertorius in Spain, and the Mediterranean, and Mithridates in Pontus. The men left behind in Rome and mainland Italy were either retired soldiers or young men who had little to no battle experience. Not a great combination. But the Roman arrogance was so great that they firmly believed that this less-than-experienced army was more than a match for Spartacus. They figured they'd have this rebellion wrapped up by the end of the summer max. Like, it's not going to take any more time than that, guys. Trust me. So, Glaber marched his army of 3,000 inexperienced boys and senior citizens, brought out from retirement, down to Mount Vesuvius, and somehow pushed Spartacus's army to retreat up to the top of Mount Vesuvius. How did he do that? We don't know. But here's what happened next, according to Plutarch. Quote, Then Glaber, with his 3,000 soldiers, laid siege to Spartacus's army, in a position which they took up on a hill. There was only one way up this hill, and it was a narrow and difficult one, and was closely guarded by Glaber. In every other direction, there was nothing but sheer precipitous cliffs. Glaber and his army forced Spartacus and his army, the size of which at this time is unknown, but it was definitely in the thousands, up to the top of the mountain. There was no way down the mountain, except one very narrow, difficult path controlled by Glaber. But Glaber couldn't exactly go up there, because his men would have to go up the narrow path, possibly one by one, where they could easily be picked off. But here's the thing, Glaber didn't have to go up there. All he had to do was wait Spartacus out. There was no game to be had on top of the mountain where nothing grew. He'd eventually get hungry. Spartacus was facing some grim choices here. Try to fight his way down or wait until hunger made him and his men too weak to fight. Couldn't the entire rebellion be over in a matter of months? No. <laughs> I was so excited. I wanted some dun-dun-dun music. <laughs> no, John, because Spartacus crafted a very clever plan that was going to turn the tables. Remember, Spartacus was most likely, let's just go ahead and say he was, Spartacus was a seasoned warrior who had served in the Roman auxiliary. He knew how the Romans fought. He knew that Glaber's plan was to wait until Spartacus's army was weak with hunger and then attack. This is how the Romans handled sieges, right? Hunger is a weapon. You saw this operating during the Gallic War, during the Carthaginian War, like every time we see Romans having a siege practically. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Hunger is a weapon. If people get hungry enough, they will sell out. 
potentially their own family. It's a race against time. Is your army going to get hungry faster than their army? Mm -hmm. So anyway, Spartacus is basically trapped up on a barren rocky mountain where nothing grew, and it's very obvious that his army was going to get hungry faster. Time was not on his side. So he had to do something drastic. So here's what happened next, Jen, according to Plutarch. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. Quote, The top of the hill was covered with wild vines, and from these they cut off all the branches that they needed and then twisted them into strong ladders, which were long enough to reach from the top, where they were fastened, right down the cliff face to the plain below. This would have been very long vines, let me tell you what. They all got down safely by means of these ladders, except for one man. One man. (laughs) One man who (laughs) who stayed at the top to deal with their arms, and he, once the rest had got down, began to drop the arms down to them. So he's dropping all the swords down to them. And then, when he finished this task, descended last and reached the plains in safety. The Romans knew nothing of all this. They did not hear the swords clattering down from the mountain at all. I don't know why. They just didn't didn't hear it. Well, I guess because they were probably wrapped up very tightly in some kind of cloth and they were dropped down. Maybe they were lowered down, like we say dropped, but they could have also been lowered down on a vine in like a basket or something. Anyway, so the Romans, for whatever reason, maybe they were baskets. Maybe they just weren't looking in that direction. Maybe they were busy doing something else. I don't know. They knew nothing about all of this. And so the gladiators were able to get round behind them and to throw them into confusion by the unexpectedness of the attack. First routing them and then capturing their camp. All right. So this is my favorite part, Jen. I love this part. Me too. This is just one of those parts that like you don't actually hear a lot about when people tell the Spartacus story about like the time he was besieged on Mount Vesuvius. He weaves his own rope and then rappels down the mountain to attack the Romans from behind. Like it's so epic. It's so epic. It's one of the reasons why the story of Spartacus is just so enduring. Yeah, but I also feel like this part of the story is almost never reproduced except for in the Stars series. Yeah, we're just going to plug it again. I feel like Stars, would you like to sponsor this season? Stars should be sponsoring us for the amount of times we've plugged their show. Yeah, so if any of you work for Stars or know anyone who does. Does anybody know Dustin Clare? Please give him my number. Also, if anybody knows the historians or anyone who worked on the show, oh my God, we'd love to interview them. God swoon. Anyway, let's keep on topic here, okay? Spartacus and his rebels wove some vines into ropes and then rappelled down the mountains like fucking badasses to sneak behind Glaber's army, surprise them, capture their shit, their weapons, their supplies, and then kick their asses all the way back to Rome. Ancient Warfare 101 says the best way to win in an ancient world battle is to go around the back. Spartacus, let's just say, he was a good student in that way. And this is one of the points in the story that completely confirms to me that Spartacus really was a Thracian and not just someone trained as a Thrake's gladiator, which historians aren't sure was true or not true. Because the Thracians were mountain people from Eastern Europe and around the Black Sea, it doesn't surprise me that they knew how to climb down a mountain. Right. They would have been totally comfortable in a mountain environment. So after this, Glaber disappears from history. We don't know if he was killed in the battle or if he just slunk away into shame and obscurity after a group of rebel slaves handed his ass to him on a platter. Like a Thanksgiving ham that's all glazed. Or Christmas nut roast if you don't eat meat. That's (laughs) the situation with Glaber's ass. (laughs) After this battle... Glaber wouldn't be the first Roman commander to tango with Spartacus and come out with broken and bloody toes. He was just the first. 
But Spartacus also suffered a devastating loss around this time, because not long after, his general, Onimaeus, disappeared from the records. We don't know exactly what happened to him either, but historians think that he probably fell in battle, and his death would change the shape of Spartacus's army. When Animaeus and Crixus controlled the Gallic recruits, Spartacus had fairly solid control over the entire army. With two trusted Gallic commanders leading his large Gallic force, no one man had total control over the Gallic troops. But with Animaeus lost, Crixus took sole command over the Gallic warriors. In the summer of 73 BC, this might have seemed like it was working out fine, but as summer wore into autumn, there is no doubt that cracks started to appear in the relationship between Spartacus and Crixus. Even so, as summer bled into autumn 73 BC, Spartacus was the undisputed power in the countryside. His army, first filled with runaway slaves and free farmers, now gained a new kind of fighter. A fighter who had a very specific skill set. A fighter who knew the fields and hills of the countryside like the back of his hand. A fighter who could hunt and track and scout as well as fight and brawl. I'm talking, of course, about Jenny's beloved shepherds. Swoon! So I also think like one of the things that shepherds don't get enough credit for, in addition to being able to hunt and track and fight and brawl and know the countryside, is they were probably expert slingers. They had to have been, right? First off, a sling is extremely cheap to make. Like, you just need, I don't know, a few strips of, like, leather. Your ammunition is free. Your ammunition is free, so it's just, like, rocks you find on the ground. So I feel like they had to have been slingers because using slings would have been really key in fighting off, you know, wolves and other predators attacking the herds, for example. I would think that a lot of the shepherds would have had sling experience. And as we all know, slingers were a very deadly contingent of any army. They were, and I would posit that potentially Spartacus didn't have anything like this before that. Most of the people he would have with him would have been warriors. Actually, it sounds like a lot of Spartacus's people were non-combatants, and those that were were maybe soldiers in armies that had been enslaved because they lost. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. Of the fighting people, it doesn't sound to me like they were slingers. Sure, and the people who we are talking about who mostly had joined his army were the Gauls and the Celts and the Thracians, and the Germans were very much of a hierarchical warrior culture, where actually what they would have wanted to be was a warrior with a sword or maybe a bow and arrow. So we're not talking a lot of people who are like, let me train to be a good slinger. Slingers were low status in the army, even though they were extremely effective, so the higher status warriors would have wanted to be swordsmen or cavalry or something like that. But the thing about slingers is they would be able to really help Spartacus in a different type of guerrilla warfare that he hasn't seen yet. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything in the ancient sources about him having slingers in his army. This is just us conjecturing that it would have made a lot of sense, and it would have made a lot of sense that shepherds in particular would have had this skill. Yeah, and it would have been a great skill to teach to some of those non-combatants, because it takes skill to be a slinger, but most people could be a slinger. Yeah, you don't need a lot of money to pay for a lot of fancy metal accoutrements. Not even that. You don't have to have a lot of upper body strength. You don't have to be able to run really quick. You don't need any of those things to be a slinger. Yeah, it's a really good point. Like the barrier of entry would be very low. Exactly. So after Spartacus defeated Glaber, he'd proved himself to the shepherds. They'd been watching this situation carefully, taking advantage of the chaos, I imagine. But now it was clear that Spartacus was the biggest bad in the countryside, and the shepherds, agents of chaos themselves, wanted in. According to Plutarch, quote, and now they were joined by numbers of herdsmen and shepherds of those parts, all sturdy men and fast on their feet. Some of these they armed as regular infantrymen and made use of others as scouts and lighter troops. So 
I've got to say that the Shepherds had to have been a game changer for Spartacus. Now he had recruits who were pretty much ready-made infantry. They already had fighting skills. They did not need to be trained. And the Shepherds knew the land and its resources like nobody else. Specifically, they knew where the wild ponies lived, Jen. I know, Jenny. (laughs) This is my favorite, favorite, favorite part. This is another part about the Spartacus story that I have never seen anyone actually, like, tell. It's not in the Star series either. Mm -mm, It's not. But this was one of the moments when I was doing the research for this episode. It was probably like 1 or 2 a.m. my time because I'm such a night owl. And I texted her, Jenny, Spartacus tamed wild ponies for his army. And I literally just swooned so hard that I hit my head on a table and passed out. And my cat ate my face. I mean, thankfully, she fell over on FaceTime so I could see what Heloise was doing. And then I made a loud, like, and she stopped biting before she took out Jenny's entire eyeball. That's right. My eyeball is still here. I have told my cat many times that when I die, she's allowed to eat my face. I think she just thought (laughs) that it was time. It's like, oh, my inheritance, Jenny's face. (laughs) This has taken a very dark turn. We're trying to tell you about how having a cavalry would make all the difference in fighting the Romans for Spartacus. But up until now, Spartacus had probably struggled to put a cavalry together. Thracians were famous horse lords. They were famous for being able to capture and train Wild horses. They were good at this shit, okay? This is well within Thracian skill set. But while Spartacus could capture and take control of some horses from the Roman army, the horses that were taken in battle probably wouldn't necessarily be, you know, of the best quality, let's say. Some of them might have been wounded, which is really sad and upsetting. If these poor horses were taken from travelers or villas that the rebels raided, those would not be war horses. They would be work horses. And they would probably be unfamiliar with battle and very skittish in battle. So if Spartacus wanted to create his own cavalry, he needed to find a supply of horses that he could mold into his own personal steeds. The shepherds led Spartacus to herds of wild ponies, which he and his men captured and trained as war horses. And before you ask Jenny, no, we don't know the breed of horse. We don't know what populations they descended from. And we don't know how the rebels caught and tamed the wild ponies or horses. I don't know how you know exactly what questions I'm going to ask, but you do. Oh, I do. Because your love of horses is like my love of penguins and my love of puffins and elephants and rabbits, foxes. You know how obsessed I am with horses. I do. But here's the thing. The ancient sources just weren't interested. They were not interested in this aspect of Spartacus's war. I don't know why. It's ridiculous. They should have been. Modern historian Barry Strauss, in his book, The Spartacus War, gives us these small tantalizing details about wild horses. Quote, During their travels, the rebels have captured wild horses that roam the southern Italian countryside. To their good fortune, they were in horse country. Even today, wild horses are seen in the mountains of southeastern Campania. Celts, Germans, and Thracians were good enough teamers to train them, and so was born the insurgents' cavalry. So, I bet you I know what kind of horse this was, Jen. Oh God, I bet you did a deep dive into what kind of horse this was. So the Pentro horse. (laughs) The Pentro, of course. How could I not know that? So the Pentro horse is a breed of feral horses that lives in the Molise region of Italy, which is right around where Spartacus was active, Jen. It's a very old breed, unique to the region, and it's been used for centuries as a workhorse and also raised for food in this area. And they're 
muscular and stocky, which would have made them good cavalry horses. And they're intelligent, kind, and easily trainable. I feel like this is the me of horses. They're also on the verge of extinction at the moment. This might also be the me of horses. Well, that's a real dark thing to say, Jen. (laughs) Maybe you should get some talk space. I don't know. There's just the one of me, Jenny. I haven't multiplied. (laughs) I'm trying to tell you about the Pentra horse. Can we just talk about the Pentra horse? So the Pentra horse is not a protected species in the area, despite the fact that there's only about 250 of them left. And there's been an influx of wolves in their habitat recently, which has brought the numbers down more. I mean, these poor horses just have to fight off wolves all the time. And I don't know if this breed of horse itself was around since the time of Spartacus, but there's a possibility that it's descended from domesticated or feral horses who were around at the time of Spartacus. So maybe there's a connection there. And if I can find like a rescue association specifically dedicated to the Pentrel horse, I will put it in the show notes. So please check there if you would like to help these horses. So in the summer slash autumn of 73 BC, Spartacus and his men rounded up and trained these wild horses, turning them into war ponies. Spartacus built his own cavalry made up of war ponies that he trained himself soon. I mean, this part of the story is just so ripe for romance novels. One day, I'm going to write a romance novel about Spartacus or just a a historical fiction novel about it. And I will not leave out the war ponies. Just imagine Crixus with his lovely, luscious, curly locks swaying in the breeze. Crixus with his locks and Spartacus and just the entire story from a female point of view. Who's going to ride your wild horses, Jen? Spartacus. I know! (laughs) (laughs) So this is yet another place where I think Spartacus was definitely a Thracian. Because Thracians were horse lords, as we've said many times. They were known for their skill in breeding and taming and training the finest horses. But while Spartacus was putting together his cavalry, another major event happened that would have a profound impact on Spartacus's story. And this one was far from the shores of Italy. Sertorius, that rebelling general, was assassinated. We mentioned Sertorius in our last episode. He was a disaffected Roman populist currently leading a rebellion in Spain. The last of the great Marian populace from the Sulla and Marius Wars. This is a big rabbit hole, so we're going to grossly oversimplify things here. But it's important for the story, and it's also important to remind you that at this point, three armies were in open rebellions against Rome, Sertorius, Mithridates, and Spartacus. Rome was up to its eyeballs in rebels. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, I think you're going to get to learn a little bit more about Sertorius very soon. Jenny has said that she would love to have an episode about him. I believe that it was Jen who said that she was going to write this episode to please me and to please all of you because Jen is a people pleaser and we're going (laughs) to use it against her at every opportunity, aren't we, kids? Stroke, stroke. Pretty, pretty pony. I just think that that is exactly how Spartacus and his beautiful Thracian and Gallic and Celtic people train those horses. They stroke them and they said, pretty, pretty, pretty pony. Pretty pony. It would work on me. If Spartacus decided that he was going to brush my hair and get all the tangles out and then maybe like comb it. You'd let him ride you, wouldn't you? Yep, (laughs) you would. I would. I'd be like, you can ride me, Spartacus. I mean, how is that even a question? (laughs) You have to be exactly Spartacus height to ride this ride. (laughs) I'm swooning over here. (laughs) Heloise, no, you can't have the eyeballs yet. No. 
No, don't let my cat eat my eyeballs. <laughs> this is Jen's role in our friendship. Explaining to my cat when she cannot eat the eyeballs. One day I'm going to have a pet. All right, let's not go into a dark place. So the Senate had initially sent a general named Metellus to deal with Sertorius, but after it became clear that Metellus was getting his ass glazed like a Christmas ham up there. Like a Christmas glabber ass. <laughs> Christmas glabber ass. <laughs> What do you want for Christmas? I want a glabber ass. Glazed. I'm getting a drink. I'll be back. Jen needs a drink. Anyway, while Jen's getting a drink, I'm going to finish this paragraph. They hauled out the big guns and sent Poppy in to help him out. Sent the teenage butcher up there. Poppy shark. He wasn't a teenager at this point in time, though. No, he wasn't, but they still called him the teenage butcher because of all the butchering he did when he was a teenager. Or because his dad was a butcher. One or the other. Strabo the butcher. I don't think it was because he was an actual butcher. Damn, I'm not getting my history right again. Shocker. Strabo the butcher. There's not enough people named Strabo. There's not enough people who have, like, fun nicknames like Strabo the butcher and the teenage butcher. So anyway, we're moving on. Sertorius had cobbled together a diverse group of Spanish tribes and disaffected legions, and he'd inspired intense loyalty in them. And his efforts were being secretly funded by rich Roman senators, once Marian aligned, who agreed with his cause. So Sertorius was like the last of the great Marian populists. And there were still Marians in the Senate back in Rome at this point, but the Sullans had won. Even though Sulla himself was dead, the Sullan faction was in control. That was still a thing in Rome. There were still people who adhered to Marian populist principles, and they were people who got, like, beat up behind the Senate building a lot. Like, they were not doing so hot down there. This was not a time where you wanted to be like, but I'm, I'm pro-Marian. I think he's got some good ideas. Take him out behind the Senate building. That was kind of how it was going. So some of these bullied Roman senators who were Marian-aligned were funding Sertorius. And we're not necessarily saying that Marian was better, because I don't know if we can make that case that Marius was better. I haven't done a giant deep dive, but I think it's probably safe to say that Marians were more populist than Sulla. Like, Sulla was a conservative. And he was a bag of worms, so. He was also a bag of worms, and Marius wasn't. So if you got to pick someone based on who was and was not a bag of worms, it's probably safe to say Marius. Anyway, so Sertorius was up there in Spain, attracting allies and getting all this money in from the heavily bullied Marian factions in Rome on a secret basis so they didn't get beat up even more behind the Senate building. And he was causing the sullen faction-controlled Roman Senate a lot of trouble. But those rich Marian backers, secret Marian backers, were beginning to realize that this was a doomed effort, that Sartorius was doomed. And around this time, the Senate issued a decree that according to Plutarch, quote, should any Roman kill Sertorius, he would be given a hundred talents of silver and 20,000 acres of land. And if he was in exile, he would be free to return to Rome. So this was a huge incentive for somebody to just get some initiative and stick a knife in Sertorius's back and end this war. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. A group of Roman senators conspired with a man named Perperna, an ally of Sertorius, to assassinate him. And this assassination, by the way, was extremely dramatic and took place at a big feast, red wedding style. And when Jenny does the mini-sode, it's going to be so amazing. 
<clears throat> when Jen does the episode on Sartorius. But this is not that mini-sode, unfortunately. So all you need to know for the sake of this story is that in the autumn of 73 BC, Properna gave Sartorius the stabby stab in public in the middle of the dinner, although Properna didn't actually wield the knife himself. Sartorius got the business end of somebody's knife in the middle of dinner. With Sartorius dead, there was still some mopping up to do. But eventually, Pompey and Metellus would put down the remnants of his rebellion for good and nothing would keep them from bringing their battle-hardened Roman legions back to Italy, where Spartacus and his army were currently enjoying a golden summer and autumn in the countryside, taming wild horses, celebrating their victories, and plotting their revolution. Spartacus didn't know it yet, but the clock was ticking. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks when we return to Spartacus's rebellion. In the meantime, come and find us on social and say hi. We're at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And make sure you check out our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you get access to exclusive episodes like the one Jen is going to write about Sartorius. <laughs> we have about 12 minisodes on our Patreon with topics ranging from mythological ways to die in the arena to pirate queens to what Julius Caesar thought about the Battle of Winterfell in Game of Thrones. We release a new mini-sode every month, and we are so grateful to our patrons. Our patrons have enabled us to keep this podcast going during some very difficult times, so thank you so much to all of you. Your support is the reason we're able to keep this podcast going. We have some new patrons to thank, don't we, Jen? We do, and we thank our patrons who are in our $5 and above tier. So if you're supporting us at our $2 level, thank you so much. We appreciate it. We still appreciate all of our $2 level subscribers as well. So we're going to read out some new $5 and up subscribers. And apologies if we mispronounce anyone's name, which is probably going to happen because it's just how we do. Rose Thorne. Publito's Way. Kay Thomas. Matt Tarlock. Tamara Hartley. Nick McAllister, and Kiara Oyola. If you're not into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can kick us a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account and find a link to our amazing merch. And if you're not able to support us financially, and we totally understand it's rough out there right now, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, or just share the news about our show to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who loves epic tales about the ancient world. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. 